How y'all going? We're great. Thanks for asking. Ooh, echo. Um, welcome back to our Daniel series. Uh, before, we, before we move on, let's just pray. So uh, if it's closing your eyes, if it's bowing your heads, putting your hands together, whatever it is that lets you really just focus in on God so you can have that one-on-one with him. Enter that space so we can pray now. Father, we want to thank you for bringing us here today on this Sunday, Lord. We want to thank you for all that you've done for us. And we want to just ask you right now, Lord, to fill this space, Lord. Fill our hearts and prepare our ears to listen. Prepare us to be attentive as we listen to your word. And Father, may we just be, um, may we be grown from what we're about to hear. So Father, we give you this day. We pray in Jesus' saving name. Amen. Just quickly, I want you guys to turn your eyes to the screen. We're going to watch a few little clips. Oh, there's no audio. Jump back. Let's try that again. Let's try that again. Okay. I'm inviting to say it's true, but the writing is on the wall. Yes, see the writing on the wall. Can't you read the writing on the wall? We skipped one, but that's all right. The, The main point was he says, the writing's on the wall. So for those of you who don't know, Daniel 5, the, t- the title of this little bit is going to be The Writing on the Wall. Um, so The Writing on the Wall, some of you may have heard of this phrase or have used this phrase before, or maybe something that's like a variant of it. And for those of you who haven't used it or don't know what this phrase means, it's a saying that we often use when um, there's an obvious or clear sign that something uncomfortable or unpleasant is about to happen. So given that, it, as you know, Edwin mentioned, it's currently exam season, um, I think for our VCE kids, it's past exam season right now, I want you to imagine that you know, you're in the shoes of a year 12 kid who's about to go sit one of their exams. Um, and let's say that you as a year 12 didn't really put a lot of effort into you know, studying for one of your subjects. Let's say maths methods for a random example, not from personal experience. Um, let's say you didn't put any effort into studying at all for your exam to the point where you couldn't recall a single equation that you would need to uh, you know, answer any of the questions. Well, the writing is on the wall for you. You're going to fail the exam. The unpleasant, unwelcome thing is the failure of your test. Now, I'm sure we've all felt this way before where we've experienced a clear sign of something uncomfortable or something um, not so good is about to happen. Uh, maybe it's those moments where you forget to take the meat out of the freezer and you hear your parents drive up the driveway. Or maybe it's when you start to feel those grumbles in your stomach when you really test out how lactose intolerant you really are. Um, Something bad is clearly about to happen and you know that it's about to happen. Well, So we find the origins of this saying, the writing is on the wall, in this chapter today. So continuing our study of the book of Daniel, um, we're going to look at chapter 5 now. So if you want to open up your Bibles, find chapter 5, feel free to do that. Um, I've split the contents up of this chapter into three sections for us to talk about. The first section, we're going to look at who Belshazzar is um, and his party that he hosted. The second section, we're looking at the message that God gave to him. And finally, we're going to be looking at Daniel's interpretation of the message. So let's look at verse 1. We follow a man, a king named Belshazzar. For those of you who are keen-eared or have read ahead or have heard of this uh, story before, good morning. Oh, it's morning still. Nice. Um, For those of you who have heard this message before, you'll know that Belshazzar is sort of a new name for us. 
Um, if you remember the past few weeks of messages that we've been hearing, uh, we've been following a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, you know, the king who we've been following. Um, but this king, Nebuchadnezzar, isn't really mentioned in this chapter aside from a callback by Daniel in the later half of this chapter. So who is this Belshazzar fellow? Um, well, since we last left off in Daniel 4, we've had a bit of a time skip happen. So for those of you who are you know, fans of anime, you should know what an anime is and what it does. For those of you who know, this time skip basically is a jumping forward in time that moves us to more important bits of the story so that we can focus on you know, the things that are happening rather than just fill a plot. So this time skip that happens, it jumps about 15 years or so from when we last left off with Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, and some things have changed since then. Um, the first and foremost thing, Nebuchadnezzar's dead, so that's a big change, you know, the guy we've been following, no longer alive. Um, and he's had a few people follow him um, after him as king. Um, so we've had some of his sons, some of his sons-in-laws follow him, um, and Nabonidus, or however you want to say that second to last name, he, in his reign over Babylon, he didn't really enjoy the space there. So what he did was he left. Because that's fair. You know? I don't like doing things. I, I just go. So, you know, no patience. But what he did was he set his son there to reign over Babylon for him. So his son, who would be Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, was Belshazzar, who was in power for around 10 years afterwards. So at this point in history, Babylon has a new king. And it's the guy we're following today, Belshazzar. We see him here in the next few verses of uh, chapter 5 as the king of Babylon hosting a party for thousands of his uh, nobles, his friends, his mates. You know, they're all having a cheeky beer or two. Um, you know, they were having drinks of wine. Um, and yeah, they drank wine and they were praising their gods. Albeit their gods, um, they're gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron and wood. So these are gods that are dead that do not have any spiritual life in them. Uh, during this party, as they were drinking, however, Belshazzar gave an order out to, um, to his people to go retrieve the gold and silver goblets that his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar had taken from God's temple in Jerusalem. We see that the kings and the nobles and his wives and his concubines, they were all drinking out of these vessels. Now, playing devil's advocate for a small bit, you might be thinking, okay, he doesn't seem like the worst guy in the world. That's fine. You know, he, he, he's a king. He has power. He should be allowed to have a drink or two with his mates. And yeah, he might be, you know, praising other gods and drinking from stolen goods. But, you know, those goblets he owns, you know, as much as the British Museum owns things they have. And he's allowed to praise other gods. You know, that's just how the world works, right? Well, firstly, Belshazzar, whose name means something along the lines of, you know, his gods will protect him as king. You know, his God's not out, the, you know, the God who has you know, given him the, 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 the ruling will protect him as king. Um, he was toasting with, he was toasting his pagan gods with vessels stolen that were made for the worship of God. They were made for the sacred worship of God. As a way to mock the God of Israel, to say that he has power over them, that he has dominion over them because he is so great because he's Belshazzar. Which, when we look back to what we talked about last week, about how Nebuchadnezzar came to really understand the power of God, to know who God truly is, it really shows off how ignorant Belshazzar is here. Especially when we remember and recall that Belshazzar, once again, is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. 
So it means that Belshazzar would have known, would have seen, would have heard the stories about how his granddad had to you know, experience God and learn how to humble himself. Now, I want you to just think of something that is really important to you, something really precious, something that is worth more than its monetary value. Maybe it's something that's irreplaceable. Maybe it's something that has a special use. Maybe it's something that has a lot of sentimental weight. I want you to think of that right now. Um, so to all the parents in the room, I want you to imagine that your kid, as your kid is a primary school kid. To everyone who's not a parent, imagine, yes, correct, Chelsea is a primary school kid. To all the, pa- the non-parents in the room, I want you to imagine, just say, that you had a primary school kid. Now, I want you to imagine how you would feel if your child was to take that very special something and just take it with them to school without asking you first, without considering you first, just so they can show it off at show and tell. They know well and truly that they shouldn't really be doing that, but they still did it anyways. And when you come to realize that fact, you know for a certain that they're not going to take care of it the same way you're going to take care of it. You know that it's not going to come home the same as it was when it was taken to school. See, you know what I'm talking about, Jen. For me, that special something I would say is my helmet. Uh, For those of you who don't know what a helmet does, it protects your head. It means more than what I paid for it because it lets me go places. It protects me from, um, you know, death. And I've been in enough crashes to know that a good helmet is something that is worth more than what you pay for it. I remember one time when I was at Kids Church doing a message, I remember setting my helmet down, uh, you know, doing all my Kids Church stuff, coming back to it, and, oh, look, it's gone. Crazy. So it turns out what happened was some of the kids had just taken it, thinking that it was fine for them to do. They were playing with it, they were dropping it, they were disrespecting it in general. They thought it was okay because they thought it was something that they were, they were, it was cool for them to do, that they could get away with it, that it wasn't a big deal. This is kind of what Belshazzar has been doing with these goblets that, they were, that were taken from Jerusalem, but to a much greater extent. He was flaunting his false confidence in what he assumed to be ownership and dominion over God. He was so prideful and boastful that he let himself believe the lie that the same God that Nebuchadnezzar, who again, grandfather, had proclaimed to the nation as being the one true God, creator of all, was someone that he, Belshazzar, could have ownership over. Secondly, not only was this party itself then an act of blasphemy because of all the things that were being said and done, which again, paints a not great picture of who Belshazzar is, but while they were having this party, Babylon, the place that Belshazzar was supposed to be taking care of, looking after, protecting, you know, as a king, doing kingly duties, they were actively being attacked by the Medo-Persian army, and they have been under constant siege for a while. So not only was he prideful in himself, he was arrogant and he thought that the thick city walls, which they're pretty thick, okay, granted, he thought that the walls would be uh, perfectly fine to protect him. We see later that that's not the case. So knowing all of this, it paints a picture of the kind of care, you know, the lack thereof that he has for his role as king, for the things that are literally happening outside of his walls. So this Belshazzar fellow isn't really the bee's knees. He's not that great of a guy. So now that we know who he is, we're going to move on to the second part, where we see what happens in his party. 
Verse 5, we see the story really start snowballing now. So we see a f- the fingers of a hand. So like, imagine this, but like none of this, just the fingers. Riding on a wall above a lampstand. Seeing this, I'm sure all of us would have the same sort of reaction. Belshazzar was terrified. He was so scared that his face drained of all the color. He went full pale and his knees started to get weak. Some believe he fell over, but you know, that's, if you want to believe that, go for it. Um, so wanting to know what is going on, he uh, summons his wise men and promises them wealth, fame, and power for those who can re- uh, recognize and interpret what this message was saying. But the thing was, when the wise men came, none of them knew what was going on. So with his pride being tested now and fear continuing to, continuing to overwhelm him, he grew even more fearful of this message that was on the wall, and he grew even paler and weaker at the knees. You know, he was going off about, oh no, things are going crazy. But hearing this, uh, the ruckus that was being made by him, the queen walks in and tells Belshazzar off for his, you know, unbefitting behavior as a king and his response to the writing on the wall. And he tells Belshazzar to summon Daniel because Daniel was a wise man who had helped Nebuchadnezzar in the past as an interpreter, and Daniel had the spirit of God in him. As she tells him, this is, as he tells him to summon Daniel, there's a sort of tone of annoyance that we can hear in her voice, because Daniel is a well-known figure in the kingdom already because of all that he had done for the kingdom. So she was annoyed that he didn't already call Daniel to come and help out. So Daniel was brought before the king where he was also offered wealth, fame, and power if he was able to decipher the words that were written on the wall. This leads us to the last part of the passage today where we see Daniel reprimanding Belshazzar and the final interpretation of this message. So brought before the king, Daniel openly refuses the gifts and the rewards that would be given to him, but he still humbly accepts his call to read the writing that was on the wall and to tell Belshazzar what the meaning was. Before he does that, however, Daniel turns to Belshazzar and he reminds him of who the one true God is and what God has done for him as king. As I talk about what Daniel is telling Belshazzar, I want you to remember how he would feel troubled over um, giving Nebuchadnezzar bad news. He was worried about breaking bad news to Nebuchadnezzar, and this wasn't the case here today with Daniel 5, with his response to Belshazzar. Daniel was not impressed with the sinful life Belshazzar led, so he straightforwardly goes to him and reminds Belshazzar that the role of God, to remind him the role that God played in his grandfather's rule and subsequently his current rule. How God gave Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty, greatness, and how it was because of the high position that God had granted Nebuchadnezzar to have that all the nations and people feared him. He retells of how Nebuchadnezzar went on to become uh, this great king, but an arrogant king that was filled with pride in himself. That was because of this, that he led, led a life that was filled with the sin of blasphemy. That he was stripped of his glory, driven mad until um, he was able to humble himself before God and acknowledge that God is indeed the one true sovereign God over all the earth and over all people. 
Verse 22, Daniel calls him out once again. But you, Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Daniel calls him out, saying how he has not learnt anything at all from those who came before him. He points out that he should know better, that even though he knew all the grace and all the power and all the truth of who God was, he is still choosing to spit in the face of God. He is putting himself in direct opposition of God. And it is this opposition, this choice of disobedience that led God to send him this message today. So the inscription that was written on the wall, the wall read, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Pasin. You, know, you might have a different translation, but they all, um, translated literally, they all mean a different sort of currency or amount of currency. So that's what happens when you translate it directly. But Daniel was here to interpret this message for him, not just translate. Daniel interprets the message as having Mene signify a numbering, Tekel, a weighing, and Pasin, a dividing. So the message was clearly understood by Daniel and explained to Belshazzar that Belshazzar's days, they're numbered. His spirit and all that he upheld, they would be weighed and they would come up short and that his kingdom will soon be divided. Oops. Lost my slides. All right, that's why I have a clicker. Oh, never mind, the back. Belshazzar, hearing this interpretation keeps his promise and orders Daniel to be clothed in purple and gold and to be promoted to the third highest ruler. So under his dad, himself, and then Daniel will be there. Finally, if you remember earlier, I mentioned about the walls of Babylon, you know, being big walls and how Belshazzar was really confident in these walls. Um, for those Attack on Titan fans in the room, you'll know that walls aren't great. So like the walls of paradise, paradise, the walls of Babylon, as big as they were, were not impenetrable, and they were doomed to fall. The writing was on the wall for Belshazzar. He was, his untimely end was near. He was numbered, weighed, and ultimately divided. So later that very night, Belshazzar, according to the reliable and truthful word of God, that said his days were numbered, that his soul was weighed, was slain, which led to his kingdom being divided. And from that point, Darius the Mede would take over the kingdom, which we'll see more about next week. And that's what happens in Daniel 5. Um, reading through this chapter, we see a lot of similarities between how uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar had to face different uh, struggles and challenges and sins. Similarly, both men lived in a perpetual cycle of sin where their pride overshadowed them, which led to them to do acts of blasphemy against God. For Nebuchadnezzar, it was a pride in the glory of the things that were happening for him that he would take upon himself and not give back to God. He, would go, he went out and he claimed that all that he had, all that he was, was due to his hard work, ignoring the fact that God had his hand in all of it. For Belshazzar, it was his blatant disregard for the sacred vessels and his lack of humility in knowing that the God who gave him all that he has was the one true Lord that he should be worshipping. Both of these men fell into the trap of idolatry, where they praised idols or even themselves, believing that there is substance in those that they worship. However, for Belshazzar, unlike his grandfather, who did end up changing his ways and accepting that God is almighty, 
Belshazzar's first appearance in this book also marks his last. It's from his attitude then that we can learn how, it's from his attitude and his response to God that we can learn and recognize what our response to God then should be. So I have three points to give you guys today. Firstly, remember that you need to be humble so that you can learn from God and learn from one another. Pride and arrogance ended up being the downfall that led to Belshazzar's death. Even though he knew what his grandfather had to go through, even though um, he knew of the God that had humbled his grandfather in the past, he still chose to act out of pride in himself because of the power that he held as king. And he chose to not lower himself before God and recognize who this God was. Now, I'm sure we've all had and will continue to have these moments where we become overwhelmed by our own pride, where our pride takes over, and in that moment, we become arrogant and confident in ourselves, that we start to block out the world. We start to block out the way that God shows things to us, and we choose to see things in our own way. But this pride that we put on, in truth, is nothing more than a stumbling block that sells us an idea of greatness, but ultimately acts to trip us up because it acts as a blindfold of the reality that is God. Belshazzar did not learn from God or his ancestors' experiences. He believed that he had dominion over God, and thus God humbles him like he humbled his grandfather. But in this case, there was no restoration so what can we learn from this? Well, for those of you who have grown up in the church, you know, you, you've learned about God, you know who God is, and you've been taught about him. And if you haven't personally experienced his work, you most likely would have seen or have heard stories about how God has worked in other people's lives around you. It's, in, it's through those moments that we need to remember that we're not all powerful, that we don't have all the answers, that we can recognize that we can look at these moments and learn from them. When you allow yourself to be humble to the experiences that God is showing you, you can grow in the truth that he represents. When you can set aside your ego, you realize that you are in fact teachable. And when you can be taught, you can also grow. Once you humble yourself, a really easy way then for you to grow and learn in this is to just open up your Bible and read the God-breathed truths that are in it. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3 says, All scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Let God's word correct you when you're wrong. Be open to know that you are wrong. Let the lessons that are taught through the Bible guide your steps towards being uh, righteous in humility. I once had a camper. For those of you who don't know, I do a lot of camps. I once had a camper. Let's say his name is Alex because that was the first name I could think of when I was writing this. He was overwhelmingly humble, I would say. He was one of those kids who, like, anything would happen to him, he'd just be like, you know what, that's all right. I, I see what's happening, that's good. He was overwhelmingly humble. So I went up to him and was like, hey, man, at such a young age, because he was a primary school kid, how are you able to, you know, react and respond to the world this way? Um, and in his own words, he pulls out his Bible and he goes, I dig into the good stuff every day. He had let go of the wanting and desiring for a prideful life. And he filled that gap 
with the powerful words of God. And like him, as you get to know and love God's word, you'll inevitably get to know and love him more as well. And through this, you will be changed and transformed. Another thing you can, we can learn from this um, lesson of how to not fall into pride that Belshazzar fails in is to look around you and to, re, to be reassured by the people in your life. See that you are journeying with so many other people your brothers and sisters who have so much to offer. To all the younger people up in the back, learn from the older people up in the front. They have years of wisdom. They have experienced all the hardships that being a teenager is. They've experienced all the fun, that you know, growing up and not knowing what the world is like. They've experienced all of that. To all the old people in the front, learn from those in the back. They bring a new perspective to this old world that we live in. They help us see things in a new light. They show us what it means to be people with childlike faith. Don't let status or age be a stumbling block for you. In the same way that I was open to learn from a primary school kid, Alex, you too can learn from those around you who are overflowing with this desire for God. You too can be kept accountable by the people around you. Empower one another, church, to live in a life that honors God and is worth living. Don't let pride get in the way and let it, don't let it lead you away from God. Secondly, remember that you honor God with your trust. While repeating Nebuchadnezzar's failure and sin of arrogance, Belshazzar takes his pride another step further. Not by taking his pride over his power over Israel, as his granddad did, but by blaspheming against God through an outward praise of other deities and a desecration of the vessels that are linked to him. Blasphemy, if you don't know, is the act of dishonoring God through our speech and our actions and our hearts. And Belshazzar does all of this in this chapter. For us to learn from Belshazzar's actions then, we need to recognize that we need to honor God with our tongues and with our lives. We need to live in a way that lets, God person, that lets us know God personally and doesn't put him beneath us. We need to live in a way where we can realize that God is truly almighty and is capable for us to put, his trust in, put our trust into him. That we can have our faith in him that saves us and guides us to do better. We need to honor God by not just believing, but knowing for a fact that he has sent his son to die for each and every single one of us. We need to live out this trust of knowing that God will never hurt us and that he has a good plan for us. And I get it. Sometimes it's very scary to put your trust in him. There are moments when even trying to see God becomes a challenge in itself where you get so overwhelmed with fear, confusion, negativity, uncertainty, whatever it might be, you get overwhelmed by these negative feelings that all you want to do is curse him out for putting this on you, putting this on you, big quotation marks for those listening. Or you find others or things to rely on to bring you peace. But it doesn't work like that. 
Um, I remember when I was still in high school, when my mum was going through her cancer. Um, I remember very vividly that we were having a youth service back when we used to have split services back at... Oops. I remember I was just standing there, and suddenly I just fell to the floor, and I just started crying. My eyes were just leaking like faucets. I remember a feeling of helplessness just flood my body. It consumed me entirely on that Sunday morning. I felt so lost because everything was so out of my own control. I had no power in my hands to fix anything. I just had to sit there and just watch things happen. I didn't turn to God. I turned to others in order to find my peace. But at that moment, my friends and my leaders that were surrounding me, they started to pray over me and encourage me to pray over myself as well. And while it's a bit cliche, that moment when I started to pray for peace, I felt God's hand rush over me. This undescribable peace was present over me. Because of this, I was able to put my trust in him. And because of that, I was able to recognize I can put this situation in his hands that when I stepped away from choosing others and choosing him again, that I could find that peace that only he can give. So it's in those moments of struggle, uh, of looking for other sources of comfort, that I urge you, church, to, not res- to resist the pressure to compromise and give in to temptations of the world. Don't give in and be paralyzed by fear, Uh, just like Belshazzar did. Don't keel over like he did when something unexpected happens. Instead, be courageous to trust and call on God as Daniel has shown us time and time again in the past few weeks. When things went wrong for him, he remained steadfast. He knew that God was still in control and he honoured God with knowing and trusting that it was God that he could find peace in. Allow yourself to pray to God so that, he can seek, so that you can seek his guidance, so that you may in body and in spirit live in his, live in his truth and honor him. Isaiah 53 says, The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. Let go of the lies that the world tells you about who God is and step away from blaspheming God and move towards honoring God, the same God that you know to be true. Find comfort in the truth of who Christ is and in that give him the honor that he truly deserves. Lastly, remember to continue giving thanks to God. Gilbert Chesterton, a philosopher, says this, When it comes to life, the critical thing is whether you take things for granted or you take things with gratitude. Belshazzar, with all of his powers given to him, took his powers for granted, took his role for granted. He went on and worshipped dead idols, praising the gods of silver and gold and nonsense. His worship was misdirected to those who did nothing to bring him to where he was. The lesson that God taught Nebuchadnezzar and teaches us sometimes in chapter 4, is that everything we have is a gift from him. Our spiritual gifts, our bodies, our families, our homes, our wisdom, our finances, everything that we have is a gift from him. And we need to recognize this. Belshazzar's idolatry led him away from 
from this truth. From take, and it took him to a bad place where he was weighed and was found lacking. So let's be a people who reminds ourselves constantly and is guided and oriented towards the true God, the one that we give our thanks to, the one that we give our praise and our worship to. See that the God we love and the God that loves us back is the one that we recognize as the source for all that we're blessed with. Our reaction then to the things that we have in our life, be it failures or success, the good or the bad, shouldn't be one of pride or disappointment, of self-importance or self-congratulation. But rather, it should be an attitude of thanksgiving that God has blessed us so that we can honor him again in all this. Thank God. Thank the God who gave his son for you and thank the son who gave his life for you. There should be no other response in this than shouts of joyful praise and gladness. So in a moment, we're going to wrap up with a closing song. Yeah. And just in that, I want you to just find some time and really have a moment with God. Have a chat with him. See what it is that you need to be thankful for. And as you sing the words, find that moment and that time to really thank him. The writing is on the wall, guys. Recognize that our punishment for our sins is approaching. But also recognize that this doesn't mean it's game over for all of us, like it was for Belshazzar. Yes, it is uncomfortable and is inevitable that the truth, that it is the truth that we're dealing with, that we deserve the punishment of eternal death for the sins that we harbor within ourselves. Maybe it's a sin of pride in ourselves over recognizing that God is the one who blessed us, Maybe it's stepping out in faith, knowing full well who God is. Or maybe it's a perpetual sin of choosing something over God. This is, the writing is on the wall, guys, and it is obvious, and it's something that we should not miss. When you see this writing, what are you going to do? Are you going to be content with the way that you're living now? Are you going to ignore the writing? Are you going to find, are you going to continue being arrogant and being prideful of the um, and ignoring the death that awaits you? Or are you going to look at this writing and realize what it is that you have to do? Realize that you need to humble yourself before Jesus, that you need to trust him as the true savior of you, your life and be forever grateful and thankful for all that he's done for you. Are you going to know the price that he paid and fully and truly accept this gift of new life. I encourage you to, re to open your Bibles and see what God is telling you and how it is that he wants to straighten your path. To pray to him so that you can rely on him and worship him in thankfulness for the blessings that he has filled your life with. So that you can remain focused in him who blesses and who saves. So church, let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your sacrifice, Lord. We want to thank you for the, the price that Jesus paid for each and every single one of us. We are so unworthy that you are so selfless in your giving, Father. For those moments when we are prideful, when we are letting all that we are come before you, Father, we pray for forgiveness in those moments. And we ask you to show us what it is that we need to do 
so that we can be humble in your, king, in your light, Lord. That we can remind ourselves who you truly are and live in that truth. So, Father, we pray this in Jesus' mighty and saving name. Amen.